But now I get to do what I love to do, which is jump in to the book of Colossians. Now, talk, speaking of the pandemic, a year ago today, all of us, our lives were standing still. It felt like the entire world pressed pause. And it's like we were all, if you were anything like where I was at, it's like you were kind of left to your own thoughts. And in the space of isolation, you're like, I don't even know what to do with myself right now. But here we are one year later, and it seems like the world is moving faster than ever before. I don't know about y'all, but I sense an extreme busyness in both in my personal life and in the culture that we live in. Our culture is shifting so fast, so quickly. It feels like it's happening on a daily basis. And in so many ways, there are beneficial things that I could imagine that Jesus would affirm as far as things shifting in our culture. And I could also imagine that there are things that he would call out for reflecting the brokenness of a fallen world. And the reality is that this leaves the church to have to grapple with what does it look like to engage a culture that is increasingly post-Christian. Now, I I sense the busyness, the weariness in our culture, but I also sense it in my personal life. Um, Most of you guys know this, but Allie and I are now one year into this parenting thing with two under the age of four. And and, and and it's exhausting because like we get them figured out And then these two specimens of humanity just like change the next day. It's like they're like a Pokemon that evolved overnight. And you're like, goodness, I thought I had you so figured out. And now like every, we have to rethink everything. That's our personal version of weariness. But what does your weariness look like recently? Where are you experiencing weariness? Figuring out what to do and how to feel about every cultural change in our world. Figuring out what to do as you get called back from furlough or being laid off. Figuring out what to do about life, career, family, roommate, living situations, all those things. No rest for the weary, right? You see, when we, when we have all these things, when, we have, when it feels like everything in life is chaotic, you know where that puts our mind? in the here and now, because those are the things that seem so urgent. But you see, what this takes us to is a place where in every aspect in our life and in our world and in our culture, we have to pick a side in each debate. We have to work harder, figure things out, pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and walk faster, get it done, figure it out. But where this method takes us is it leaves us less secure, more unsure of how we can actually live in this world well. Mainly because it puts the focus on either our own wisdom, our own human intellect, or the ability of some consensus out there to be able to figure things out. Now, by the way, when I'm talking about things on the political cultural spectrum, you're already, you might be like, yeah, the people on the other side of where I sit, they need to hear about this. What I want to encourage you towards tonight is especially in that unique space. I don't want you to think about what somebody else needs to hear. I want you to think about what you need to hear. Because really, I need to hear this. I need to be challenged in this space. Because anytime that I am relying on my own ability to figure things out, I am not relying on the way of Jesus. But whether you are struggling with the culture of our day or struggling with something more personal and unique to what's happening in your personal life or in your family life, all of it comes down to this. If our personal best or the best of our culture can come up with is not sufficient, does Jesus offer an alternative that's actually better? 
I'll put it a different way. And this is one that you might want to write down if you're a note-taking type of person. Is Jesus enough to handle where I'm at today? Is Jesus enough to handle where I'm at today? Now, last week, Joel was up here and he broke down Paul's call for the Colossians in light of the fact that they have been delivered through the victory of Jesus over sin and death, that they should not be swayed into blending any other type of spirituality into their relationship with Jesus, that they should remain pure because the truth is, is to truly know that Jesus is enough means to know that adding anything to him will only dilute who he is. But now, but now Paul takes the victory of Jesus and he begins to apply it to the life of those who would desire to follow after him. So we are in Colossians 3 tonight. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you have a smart device and you just want to be able to read in the same language. Now, here's how Paul starts it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. In other words, since we have been rescued and unified with the king of the cosmos, be captivated by his kingdom. I'll say that again. Since we have been rescued and united with the king, be captivated by his kingdom. Now notice how many times throughout the entire book of Colossians, but even in this passage we're going to look at tonight, Paul likes to use the, um, the literary device of parallelism, where he is bringing a starch contrast between two very different things. So for example, he says things like raised up versus buried, things like dead, death and life, things like two very different kingdoms. And what he's ensuring that his readers would see is just how vastly different things with Jesus go versus things in the way and the patterns of the world around us. So, As Paul talked about earlier on in this passage, we were dead and buried in our trespasses. This is the best we can muster on our own terms in our world. But in Jesus, everything changes. But in Jesus, everything changes because now we have been raised up with Christ. Now, in Greek, the language for raised with is the, is the same word that defines now to being synchronized, to be synchronized with. So to be raised up with means that we have been synchronized with Jesus. In other words, where Jesus goes, we go, which means when he was raised from the dead, so were we. We were raised back to life. So we have been connected and united with Jesus. If he goes to the left, we go to the left. If he goes to the right, we go to the right. Wherever Jesus is going, we are called to go with him. So we are connected and united to the King, Jesus. Now, I'm going to go ahead and imagine that for most of us, that might sound pretty decent. Like, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Uh, I've been following Jesus for a while. That kind of language, I've heard it before. But I promise you that this reality is more beautiful than you could ever imagine, which is why Paul ends this sentence with a powerful image of Jesus's present geographical location for the last 2,000 years. Let's look back at that passage. So if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Now, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we often have a view of Jesus that simply meets our hopes or our expectations. We have kind of crafted Jesus into our own image or our own desires. So you might view Jesus as a friend or as a teacher or as a wrathful ruler or as a rescuer or as a king. Or if like Talladega Knights, like Ricky Bobby's friends, like as, as a child or as a ninja. And now, most of those things are true, except for, you know, the whole thing of wrathful ruler or Jesus has never really been a ninja that I'm aware of. And he stopped being a baby about 2000 years ago. So other than those things, pretty fair. But I promise you, Jesus is more beautiful than we could possibly imagine. And this reality was something that one of his closest followers, a guy named John, realized. Now, John was one of his inner circle of disciples. Out of the 12, he was one of the three closest ones. And he would later go on to pen his gospel account of Jesus's life. And in it, we see just how close John's friendship to Jesus really was. So John knew something that we should all know about his teacher, Jesus, that Jesus is our friend, that Jesus is supposed to be our teacher, that he is a good shepherd. The fact that Jesus is better at being human than we could ever dream of being ourselves. But he discovered by walking with Jesus that he was so much more. He is also rescuer, Messiah, anointed one, king, and God, that he is holy, powerful, and beautiful beyond comparison. And that's just what John realized by just journeying with Jesus on the physical reality of earth. But then some decades go by. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And John has become one of the early church fathers. During the time that has passed, he is arrested and they attempt to execute him by dipping him into a vat of oil. Um, Miraculously, that doesn't kill him and he survives. So then they exile him to an island called Patmos. And on this island called Patmos, he's supposed to live in obscurity for the rest of his days with no contact with anyone. The only problem is Jesus doesn't go by the rules if nobody gets the contact person, right? So John is approached in a revelation by Jesus. We now know it is the book of Revelation. And in that book, we get an image of when these two friends reunite. But listen to the way that these two friends reunite and tell me if you've ever seen a friend quite like this when you haven't seen him in a while. Then I turned, so this is Revelation 1, starting in verse 12. Yeah. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and, of, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now that language, that's a biblical metaphor or that's a biblical phrase that is to describe the Messiah. Jesus assigns himself that title as well. So, and one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Any you guys ever experience a friend like that? No, no. Okay, good. Okay. But get this. This is how, this is the most important part that I want to point out tonight. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So the same two people that walked together, that 
One was the student, one was the teacher. They ate meals together. They laughed around a campfire together. They did life together. And now they are going from having dinner together to see that John is seeing Jesus in full form and is falling over like he's dead because Jesus in full power is so mind-blowing, so captivating that he can't help but take that posture. It's the only right posture he has left. And this is the present physical form as well as the geographical location that Paul is getting at, that he is sitting with the Father in this epic glory. Now I bring this up because if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to him, if you have been raised up with him, you better know who this person is, right? Who you are following, who you have surrendered your life to, who has, you have connected your eternity with. See, Jesus is both friend and king, teacher and savior, kind and powerful, loving and just. And if you follow Jesus, you are united with him. Where he goes, you go. Now, Paul's desire is that since that is true, since we are united with the king, then we would seek the things of the kingdom. So let's go back to the verse again. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. You see, as one early church father who came from Africa, his name is Augustine of Hippo, would write that there are two diametrically opposed kingdoms in this world. There is the there is the kingdom of man and there is the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world is where humanity, we define good and bad on our own terms. And we attempt to write our own rules. And then there's this other kingdom, the transcendent kingdom of King Jesus, where God's heart reigns, where justice is realized, where love is defined by God. And then he guides us into what that looks like. And where ultimately we know God and enjoy him forever. And if I were to just teach about the beautiful realities of the kingdom, I would never do it justice. And I would be up here for many, many messages. In fact, Jesus taught many, many, many messages about the kingdom. It was the primary topic that he talked about anytime he got up and shared with just about anyone. He was proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And in fact, if you, maybe you grew up reciting the Lord's Prayer, you learned it at some point in your life, you probably remember that Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray something like this. He would say, your kingdom, pray this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus would simplify the gospel message to simply be this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from this other kingdom because the true kingdom is coming. So in a kingdom of darkness, death, decay, Jesus came to usher in a kingdom of life, light, and freedom. So what does it actually mean then to seek the things that are above? What does it mean to seek the things of the kingdom? It means to pursue the beauty of the kingdom, to pray for it to become evident in the midst of our dark world, that we would desire to live according to the principles of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is present wherever God's way is prioritized, which Jesus once defined pretty simply and pretty easily. He was asked by a religious leader, he was asked, what is the greatest of the laws? And Jesus summarizes it saying, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. That, that is the defining marker of life in the kingdom. Love, love toward God and love toward others. And all other laws are simply outflowings, practical application of that original law. Right love for God and right love for people. And every type of sin and brokenness is eradicated by this command. Living out this command gives the heart and the intention behind everything that God calls good. And we learn more of what it means to live out the command of love as we learn to seek the things that are above. So since we are raised with Christ and since he is on the throne and since he is unsurprised by what's happening in our world or what's happening in our culture, we are called to seek, in other words, to search for, to desire after the realities of the kingdom in our minds, our hearts, and in our lives today. Now, Paul continues that thought in verse two by saying it this way. Not only are we supposed to seek the things that are above, but he also says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. So again, parallelism. Paul is showing two very different kingdoms and he is showing that they do not blend well. Now, I don't know about you, but my personal temptation is I just want, wish that we could all just get along, that we could all just pretend that there weren't really any differences between patterns of thought. But the only problem with that, and as we talked about last week, Jesus doesn't require any other version of spirituality to be added to him because to add to him is to subtract from who he ultimately is. Jesus really is enough. But the same goes for the kingdom. His kingdom is enough that if we are firmly rooted in it, And we are allowing it to transform the way that we see people, the way that we see God, the way that we see the world around us, the way that we see everything from politics to culture, everything from our heart to our mind, that we would be rooted in a kingdom that transcends this world and the best that our political scientists or our cultural apologists could possibly comprehend. So not only are we to continually pers- to pursue after, to seek and to discover how the realities of the kingdom are at play in our lives, but we also are meant to be firmly rooted in the realities of the kingdom. So does that mean if we are to set a firm root in this kingdom reality, but the fact that we live on planet death where everything's kind of broken, chaotic, and janky, like we, so if we live in this chaotic world, then what are we supposed to do? Should we go like sell all our stuff, move up onto the top of the hill and just go, Jesus, come back tomorrow, please? Or do we go and the other option would be that we could go off and we're gonna, okay, we're gonna establish like this, this Jesus community that nobody else comes into, that we're gonna keep it away from the stain and the brokenness of the world around us. We're gonna have like this Christian bubble. Now, both of those things have been tried by many in faith communities in the past and even in the present. But what I would argue is that this is where the roots of the concept of, you may have heard this before, but you can be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good comes from. But I wholeheartedly disagree with that statement. And I agree with the way that C.S. Lewis writes about this concept. He writes about this, um, C.S. Lewis, author and um, theologian, he writes it this way. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since 
it is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. See, this is what it looks like to seek first the things of the kingdom, to set your minds firmly in the things of the kingdom. We love people and love God in radical ways. We set our hearts intention on going out and making disciples of Jesus. We go and we bring the kingdom of God into our world through the way that we live, the way that we love, and the way that we care about others. See, so we don't have to settle at trying to fix our world with the same broken tools that the world is trying to use. Now, caveat, but that doesn't mean is that we never link arms with those who do not follow after Jesus when there is a space of common ground for us to pursue after justice in. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that we realize that if we truly seek and we truly set our minds on the things of the kingdom, we'll be more equipped to love God and to love people than if we were to go about it based on our own individual wisdom or collective wisdom and abilities apart from the way of Jesus. And this is possible because we're not in this battle alone, insecure. In verse three, Paul continues this way. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. God. So you were dead in your sin and in your brokenness. You were citizens of a kingdom of death. You were living on planet death. But then what's so cool about the gospel? We put death, death to death. We have put that, that whole holistic nature about us to death. And it is a continual death process day after day after day. We we're dead and now we are dead to death. But now you have been risen with Christ. You've become citizens of the kingdom of God. You have been hidden in Christ. You previously were about as vulnerable as it could possibly get. And now you are as secure as it gets with Jesus. Paul writes in another letter to the church in Galatia, In Galatians 2.20, he writes it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in me. Now, I'm going to go ahead and um, we we prepared a visual to kind of help make this theological reality come just a little bit more clear for us. So we got some boxes here. Well, one big box to start. So let's talk about some boxes. We're just going to put it right there. Okay. So this is you. You. All right. So this is you. Vulnerable, kind of, kind of flimsy. Um, The reality is dead. This is us by our natural ability. Insufficient. But we have been crucified with Christ, according to Galatians 2.20, right? And what does that verse say? Who lives in you? Jesus. Jesus is the correct answer today. Perfect. Okay. So Jesus, Christ, Christ lives in you. All right. But 
Like, is this, is this like an insecure relationship where Jesus is going to like just hop out? No, 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 no. There's a lid that covers it and seals it. You are sealed with Christ in you. If you are in Christ, this is the truest thing about you. But like I just said and gave away, and like it says earlier on in the book of Galatians and all throughout the New Testament, we, are, we not only have Christ in us, but also we are in Christ. Good job. Which means we have another box here. And this box also says Christ. So you have, you, you have a you, but now you have a Christ in you and you are in Christ. And guess what? That's also sealed. Getting a clearer picture of who you are yet? Cool. Now, that's pretty cool, right? But get this. Let's go, back to, let's go back to Colossians really quick. What does it say? Colossians 3, verse 30. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you are with Christ in God. unblemished, perfect. You can't see through. You can't be demolished because you are in Christ. So you have Christ in you. You are in Christ and you are with Christ in God. This is you. If you love and follow after the way of Jesus, this is you. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, you see, think about what comes at you in this world. Think about what has been coming at you this last week. We have the kingdom of this world and a culture that is, out, that is totally opposed to the way of Jesus. You might struggle with your own self-doubts, your own personal brokenness, a habitual sin that you cannot get rid of. You might be wrestling with feelings of insecurity, unworthiness, and fears. And then, you know, it's just so wonderful. We have a spiritual enemy, the Satan, and his desire is to perpetuate all of those things. His greatest desire is to convince you that all of those things, the brokenness of our world and the brokenness within ourselves is the truest things about us. But here's where we need to remember this. Because when the enemy attacks you, (laughs) he first has to face off against God the Father. And you know what's really crazy? I don't know how much time you've spent in the scriptures, but if you spent any time in the scriptures, you might know this. Satan doesn't have a very good track record with God. Um, In fact, it's like always defeated kind of record. But let's like say for argument's sake that like Satan's coming at you and he hits up against the father and then somehow he is able to juke past the father and go past that layer. Well, guess who he has to go up with next? Christ, because you are also in Christ. Now, craziest thing, craziest thing happened. Um, this one time, the Satan thought he beat Jesus when he was hanging on the cross and he died. And he gloated about it for a couple days, thinking that he won, that he killed the snake crusher. The only problem was Jesus resurrected from the grave and crushed the head of the serpent proving that he is a snake crusher, that he is victorious, that he is supreme, and that he is enough. And the accuser has no longer any ability to make accusations against those who are in Christ. 
but let's go ahead and say somehow you expect Jesus as well. What's the last piece? Because it's still not just you, right? It is Christ in you and the person of the Holy Spirit. So let's say that he gets past the Father and gets past the Son. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. (laughs) The enemy is relentless, but God is secure. And see, this is the beauty of what it means to be hidden with Christ in God. Because in your darkest moments, when you don't feel secure, when you don't feel worthy, when you don't feel faithful or loved, remember, you are hidden with Christ in God. And nothing, our culture, nothing the kingdom of this, of this world can do, nothing the spiritual enemy could ever accuse you of can change or alter that reality. That is security in Christ, in God. Now, if that news was all that was true, wouldn't that be incredible? But let's go to verse four and see how it gets even better. So verse four, when Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, we weren't created to stay hidden forever because one day this, this, our current reality won't be required anymore because one day we won't be, we won't be so vulnerable as we are in our own natural state right now. One day, everything changes. Everything gets better. Now, the book of Revelation, it gives us the image of a day when the king does return and we return with him. This is the day of glory that Paul is referring to in verse four. And at the end of this, he eradicates the kingdom of this world and love and justice truly win. Now, I want to give you just a foretaste of what that day will be like, because if you are in Christ, this is, you're a part of this. So, Revelation 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God, he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said this, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And get this, if you are in Christ, this is you, the one who conquers, not through our conquest, but through the conquest of Christ, the victory of Christ. One who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation represented, displaying the full, beautiful diversity of the family of God, all coming together in glory, no longer insecure, no longer fearful, no longer wondering what's going to happen next. Now in full reformation glory that we have been reformed and recatalyzed into the things we were created to be all along, sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos, co-heirs with Christ to the throne of grace. And that is everything. 
It changes everything because when we are looking at our world and it feels like we are getting pushed back and beat up on left and right, when it feels like, I don't know how Jesus wins this world now. When it feels like, I don't know what to do with the circumstances that are happening in my life at work or at home. I don't know what to do with the diagnosis of my family member. When we are in that space, we've been hidden with Christ in God. And one day that won't even be necessary because we will appear with him in glory and we will be pure as he is pure. But until then, we find ourselves strangers in a foreign land. We are citizens of a different kingdom, but residents in this present one. And it would be foolish to pretend that if we just had like a one size fits all solution to every cultural issue or every nuance that our world could throw at us. But here's what I do know is that if you are finding yourself, if you walked in here tonight, weary of the fight. If you walked in here tonight, unsure, disheartened. And if you wonder how is this world or my life ever going to get better? Set your mind on the kingdom. Seek first the things of the kingdom. Set your mind not only on the kingdom though, but ultimately on the king who is ruling the kingdom. Because you see, Jesus is supreme and Jesus is enough. And the one who began this good work in you will carry it out until the day of its completion. And what this means for us is simple. Take heart for Jesus has overcome the world. And if you are with him, then we don't have to worry about our ever-shifting culture because we know our security isn't found in the here and now. The worst the world can throw at us is death and death And this world means presence with Christ. So there isn't anything that this world can do that can remove us from this. And our hiddenness with Christ matters a heck of a lot more than anything that our world could possibly throw at us. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come on up. And here's what I would love to do. You might have come in here tonight weary. You might have come in here tonight honestly cheerful. But wherever you came in here tonight, if you just found yourself in a place where you're just curious about God, what does it look like for me to seek the things of the kingdom, to set my eyes on the things above? If that is you, as I'm praying right now, here's what I'd love for you to do is to simply just stretch your hands out in front of you, both palms raised up, just in in a posture of receiving and asking God as I pray over all of us that he would reveal what that means, what that looks like, and how he would desire to challenge us into that in our lives tonight. So feel free to join me in that if you'd like. Father, I thank you that you are good and that you are kind. I thank you that the kingdom is so much greater than anything that any mere mortal could ever preach about. I thank you that that we aren't left alone. We aren't left insecure. We aren't left destructed that we have been united with you. And because we have been united with you, everything changes. So Lord, for those of us who are here tonight, who are finding themselves disheartened, questioning everything, questioning their faith, questioning if they are, can even consider themselves still to be a part of your family. I pray, Lord, that you would be revealing through the power of your spirit, a beautiful conviction that we would seek you 
that we would realize the areas in our lives that we have not handed over to you. The ways that we view the world, we haven't handed over. The circumstances happening at home, we haven't handed over to you our political philosophies, our social and cultural desires or norms. But Lord, I pray that those of us who follow after Jesus would first and foremost seek after Jesus in his kingdom far before we settle for anything less. But God, we do not have the power to do that on our own. So I pray, I beg you tonight, God, for me and for all my friends here and my friends online, that you would give us more of you we'd be enamored by you, that we'd be in awe of you and ultimately see that Jesus is enough. So we need you. Help us, Lord. Your kids need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.